This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. It has been said that a continued engagement with history is vital as it helps give context for the present. Black History Month is an opportunity to understand Black histories going beyond stories of racism and slavery to spotlight Black achievement. And I think today's guest is perfect for that. Valerie Williams is the daughter of Lee Williams, and we're going to hear a lot more about Lee Williams, the founder of the Order of the Sleeping Car Porters. And Valerie Williams is going to talk about today and the future because she's the Director of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion at the Rady Faculty of Health Science. Valerie, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you, Stuart. So, Valerie, just put it a little bit into context. We know who your father was, but let's talk about how you find yourself now as the Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the Rady Faculty of Health Science. How did you get there? How did Valerie Williams become that person? Oh, I would say it probably because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I think it has very little to do with me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be in this role. It's a privilege to work at the University of Manitoba. I have an opportunity to work with some amazing colleagues strong allies to Indigenous peoples and racialized peoples and Black communities. And I learn so much every day. So I don't know if I did anything or if if it was just a series of circumstances that have led me here. So your family, I think, if I understand correctly, Valerie, came from Texas to Saskatchewan? My father His family migrated to North Battleford in around 1910 from Tabor, Oklahoma. And Canada had promised lands, homesteading lands to people. And that's how him and his family arrived. My mother, interestingly enough, my mother's family came from Oklahoma as well. But they went to Edmonton, Alberta, to a small black farming community called Amber Valley. And my mother and father met in Winnipeg. Wow. And we talked a little bit about we're having quite a winter here in Winnipeg. I'm not sure when they would have when they would have arrived here, but they both arrived here and they they got to know each other, got married. When would that have been, Valerie? Just put that in context. Okay, so I'm looking, I'm going to say mid 40s, 1940s, they got married. So in the 40s, and that's uh, they're in Winnipeg. Now, you've got a very famous, well-known, well-documented dad called Lee, but you also have a mother. Tell me about your, what was your mother's name? Alice, Alice May Brown Williams. And she was awesome. She was uh, certainly, they were very much in love. My father certainly depended on her. She really did. She had, you know, the the uh, traditional role of mother and wife in the 50s and 60s. She did go back to work when I went to school. She was an amazing woman, very strong woman. She was biracial. 
She was born in Amber Valley in 1924 to a white mother and a black father. So she suffered a fair amount of discrimination, not only from the white community, but from the black community as well. That's, uh, you know, interesting. And so Valerie, your mother, Alice, your father, Lee, tell me about, do you have brothers, sisters? Yes, I have an older sister, Sharon. She lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I have a brother, Leonard. He lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He's a few years older than me. And we're very, very close. Family was a priority in the Williams household. My father had 12 brothers and sisters. And I can remember when we were young, they were all sleeping car porters at one time. And we would travel from Winnipeg to Vancouver to visit and stay with family. And they would come back and stay with us. Very important. So we have been lucky enough to carry on that tradition. And Valerie, just exploring your background for a moment. Where did you go to school and tell us a little bit about your education again, just landing you in this obviously very, very important role at the uh, Rady Faculty of Health Science? I grew up in West Kildonan. It was in the 50s and my father was not allowed to buy a house in River Heights. So he purchased us a home in West Kildonan. I grew up in a largely Ukrainian and Jewish neighborhood. I was the only black kid in the school. I don't know if I really, it certainly didn't bother me at the time. I had lots of friends. I was very popular. There were some incidents of name calling from people that I did not hang around with. I went to Garden City High School and I went to the University of Manitoba as a mature student. I received my Charter Professional Human Resources, I'm going to say early 2000s. And I worked in human resources for a number of years in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And unfortunately, my good friend, Jackie, she was a director of equity, diversity, inclusion at Rady, has decided to move to BC. So I applied for this role. And I think I know Jackie. I think we spent a bit of time on the Human Rights Committee of Council together. Now, isn't she a wonderful woman? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Our loss, BC's gain, but she's staying in Canada. So all good. (laughs) Yeah, there's that. So, you know, Valerie, obviously, when we've chatted offline a little bit, I really would love to get the experience that you saw. You know, people have talked a lot about your father, Lee Williams, how he was a founder of the Order of Sleeping Car Porters. But, you know, there's so much history in a short time period and that struggle. And I'd love you to share memories, thoughts, some of the things that you you took away from that, that you learned from that. My context of it, Valerie, is that I had a chance to read They Call Me George by Cecil Foster. Of course, your dad is mentioned very much in there. But in your words, Valerie, tell us a little bit about what it was like living in the world of Lee Williams. Mm, it was awesome. He was all he was very busy. I can remember when I was very young, he worked two jobs. He worked as a sleeping car porter for CNR. And he also worked with my uncles, stuccoing houses at the time. They were stuccoing. And he did get his job at the CNR, I believe it was in 1930. And at one time, sleeping car porters were the elite in the Black community. But under that veneer, 
they faced a great deal of discrimination on the railroad, not only by CNR and the collective agreement, but it was also in their contract, in their contract that they were bound to. And he saw an opportunity to improve the conditions for the porters. And it took many years and two prime ministers, but finally he accomplished it. It began in 1955. He took a resolution to a union convention stating that job discrimination be removed from the collective agreement of the Canadian Brotherhood of of Railway Employees. Nothing changed. That was in 1955. And he did happen to meet John Diefenbaker. He was an MP at that time on the railroad. And when Mr. Diefenbaker became prime minister, my father wrote to him asking for help. Diefenbaker sent him a copy of Canada's Fair Employment Practices Act and some instructions on how to proceed. He charged the railways with the discrimination under the act. And again, time stood still. Ten years later, Williams wrote to then Prime Minister Lester Pearson saying he expected the law to be enforced. Within days, Pearson informed the railroads that if they did not change their practice of discrimination, the government would change it for him. And he became one of the very first sleeping car conductors, black sleeping car conductors, and was later promoted to supervisor. In 2002, he received an honorary doctorate of laws degree from York University, and he has received many awards and many recognitions. Yeah, no, for sure, Valerie, I appreciate that. Uh, I just think that if you're able to, you know, share some of the history, uh, you know, I mean, how it came about, it was, you know, the end, of course, finally something was done. But the notion that if you were a sleeping car porter, that you would have no opportunity, zero opportunity for advancement. And yet it had nothing to do with ability or education or anything. It was, it was simply a systemic discrimination, systemic racism. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so to watch your father achieve something with that, you know, kind of every day that he was getting up to go to work, knowing that that was in front of him. Did you ever get a sense of what that was like from a family, as you see, or a close family from a, from a family perspective? He's a very strong man determined and focused. I don't know if you've had a chance to see the road taken. Not yet, but it's on my bucket list. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that is about him. Yeah. And he is featured in that and he's eloquent. And I'm not sure what grade he went to in school, but it certainly was in grade 12. And he was certainly a gifted speaker. He was just, you know, strong strong will, strong mind. And would he have, I mean, every time he encountered something that would be clearly systemic racism. And of course, you know, that action existed back then. I don't know that that word existed back then. I don't know if that word existed back then either, but I do want to be clear. Systemic racism is alive and well in all of our organizations and institutions. At that time, it might have been more overt and easier to identify. I think we're still struggling with the same issues. They're just not as easy to identify. We have normalized them. So let's talk about that in terms of how your father 
And I think it's fascinating that he had a chance to meet a future prime minister being John Diefenbaker. Through my involvement at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, when I was aware that it was Diefenbaker that brought in the original Bill of Rights. And it's fascinating, Valerie, because that document, when you look back today, had a tremendous number of flaws. But at that time, and I think that's what is important to look at at that time, what it meant for Canada, for multiculturalism, for issues that your father was facing, was an important document for Canada to start to build on that obviously brought in our constitution of rights. And thank God we're always evolving towards towards a more inclusive community. I'm not suggesting we are even close, but we have certainly advanced since the 1950s. And Valerie, did you ever get a chance to ride the rails with your father? A lot. I was serious when we were young. That's what we did on vacation. We went to visit family in Toronto and Vancouver and Edmonton and Calgary. We rode the rails. <laughs> but at that time, Valerie, just to put it into context in terms of time, was your father still engaged as a sleeping car porter at that time? I think he became a sleeping car conductor when I was a teenager. So when I was very young, yes, he was a porter. So, and there's just, I want to make sure that I'm using the right terminology also, Valerie, because to be a sleeping car conductor would be an advancement, if I'm not understanding this right, from an advancement from a sleeping car porter. So in other words, once he brought in and once he challenged and once he got the order of the sleeping car porters, he was able to get advancement within the railway. He was one of the first black men to be promoted to a sleeping car conductor. Yes. What was that like in the Williams household when that became reality? I can remember jubilant. You know, everyone was thrilled. He had a lot of friends, of course, all and family, uncles, all sleeping car porters. It was a celebration. He'd worked extremely hard while he was working full time as a porter. So he'd be out days on the road every week and then come home and have to work on this. So he was uh, he was busy. I can remember having to go to Ottawa. And I remember, you know, my mother was really the one who kind of held us together during that time. She was the one who kept us, kept the kids and the home. And a thing that struck me so interesting and I'm not sure if interesting is the right word, Valerie, maybe to me, some of these things are always educational. When you, when you look back historically and you realize that there was the brotherhood of railway workers who you would think would endorse and support what was happening to the sleeping car porters, but quite the opposite. They did not want to look for any of these Black Canadians to have an opportunity to advance. At that time, it's a stunning revelation. Not really when you think about it, Stuart. I think people with privilege today don't want, aren't willing to give up their privilege. They see if they give up their privilege, they're giving something away to someone else. And what are they left with? So I, I see that very clearly. What I did find interesting, there were a lot of Black men that were afraid of my father going through with this complaint because they were afraid of losing their jobs, losing what they already had. So he received resistance not only from white people, he received resistance from black people. 
And again, to kind of put that in context, Valerie, I guess, knowing that if there was an opportunity to hopefully to try to remove discrimination or, or racial discrimination, systemic racism, by including the sleeping car porters in a more broad arrangement or a more broad agreement with the railway workers, the concern was that that would not necessarily provide for advancement of the sleeping car porters who were mostly black. It would allow white people to sort of take over sleeping car porter opportunities. And I think there are some white sleeping car porters now. I'm not sure. I haven't been on a train for a long, long time, but I'm sure there are, you know, white sleeping car porters. But at the time, the majority was black. And I think the fear was they're going to take our jobs. So not much has changed, really. I see that today. People are still concerned about giving or sharing their privilege or using their privilege for good. So he was facing a battle on many fronts, not only from whites, but from blacks as well, who were afraid they're going to get fired, which I can understand. If you kind of went into the memory bank, Valerie, just to think about, you know, some highlights, if somebody were to ask you just to recall some of the things that you remember, the fight that your father went through and, and maybe some of the words that you were hearing or some of the things that were happening at that time. That has probably, I think, grounded you to fast forward to today and say the year might be different than it is today, but the language and the challenges are not necessarily different. I can remember my father saying it's not right. And that stuck with me. It wasn't right. And I won't use some of the language he did. He was strong. He wasn't afraid of the fight on his job when he did face discrimination. He wanted to protect his security, his job security. He was very conscientious about providing for his family. But outside of his job, if he was, you know, attacked racially or addressed with discrimination, he would certainly meet that challenge. He would not shy away from a fight. So I can remember that he was steadfast in his belief that all human beings are equal. And that the color of our skin has no bearing on opportunities. So I grew up knowing that it was wrong to discriminate. When your father, Lee, was so embroiled in this, and again, this is obviously well in advance of social media, Valerie, but the notion that you were the daughter of, did that have any impact on you as you were going through your education or your life? Extremely proud of my father, and he did not have the privileges that I have had in my life. And look what he has done. I could never reach, you know, the achievements he did. And I'm just so proud of him and thankful for him and my mother. Well, and I think we have to just take a moment also to come back to your mother, whose name is Alice. When your father gets the recognition he deserves, and obviously it's, it is extremely well-deserved. But knowing that there was somebody at home making sure that, you know, your home was strong, safe, a place that, you know, the children like you and the rest of your your family could grow. What was your mother like? She was a lot more strict than my father. My father was a soft one. She was pretty uh, rigid. You know, we did things in order. 
you know, she would do our hair, my sister and my hair every Saturday night before church, which included a huge process we'd have to sit still for. She was amazing. Very, very, I don't know how two people came together, both so strong and who had faced so many barriers in their lives. And would she have to, you know, in the community at all, Valerie, would your mother Alice have to deal with some of the backlash that might have become from both the black and the white community about what your father was trying to do? Oh, absolutely. Even though she was strong, she was not as outspoken as my father. I did get that from him. I will stand up and I will speak the truth. My mother was a more soft approach, a gentle approach. So certainly some of the women of the black men, their wives, I'm sure that were afraid my father, my father going through with this complaint. I'm sure she was stigmatized and probably made to feel quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And is it fair question, Valerie, to ask that your mother, Alice, might have had her friends or her circle of friends would also be women of color whose husbands or partners or boyfriends, whatever, maybe sleeping car porters? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was a community. At one time in Winnipeg, we knew every black person in Winnipeg. It was a community. The church was built near the railroad station, CNR and CPR. So all of her friends were Black women at that time. Of course, she gained different friends and neighbors and all of their husbands. And I can remember, I'm not going to say 100%, but certainly a high majority, 90% of the husbands of the men in our community were sleeping car porters or worked on the railroads. Right. Yeah. I think I read a passage to just sort of show, I think, how, as they say, is racialized and the discrimination that the when they tried to renew the contracts and the sleeping car porters were wanting to be a part of that contract with the I guess they were called the Brotherhood of, I don't know, railway workers. So they were outside the sleeping car porters, but they all they were all involved in, in the railway. And I'm thinking about brakemen, engineers, conductors, etc. The point that I was amazed to hear is that the porters were not part of it because they worked on the railroad, but they weren't operating the railroad. So they discriminated again and found another way using language to discriminate against them. Of course, of course they did. They were going to do everything they could. The collective agreement and the CNR did not want the sleeping car porters, the mainly black men, to have opportunities for advancement. And of course, they were going to use language that would, you know, benefit them in any way they can. And we see that today. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I want to talk about today, and I just I want to just a couple of quick more things about your father. When you look at how language can be so derivative you know, in terms of where these conversations go and everybody knows that it's wrong, but those that are entitled and those that are in the power position won't make those changes. I think it just speaks volumes again, Valerie, to your father, who was steadfast in his understanding and and his viewpoint that, you know, we are all equal and he was going to fight for that and he was successful. And as you say, that fight still continues. It still continues. And we have to look at who writes these policies. 
who benefits from these policies and who is excluded from these policies. So that is where we're going to be able to identify the barriers in our systems today and our structures and our organizations. And, you know, so the last comment I make on, on your father, and we're going to talk a little bit about you and the Pilgrim Baptist Church. I just found it interesting, Valerie, how the sleeping car porters were just, you know, treated so poorly and so discriminated against. And you think about the organization, the railroad, the CN, the CPR that ran it. They were ultimately the face of the railroad. That's who people interacted with. I mean, it wasn't the conductors or it wasn't the engineers or the brakemen. It was the sleeping car porters. And they had a very hard job. It was like manual labor, you know, and they were they suffered immense, you know, racial slurs. I wouldn't even say microaggression, racial discrimination, you know, and they had to endure it. They could not tell white people exactly what they thought they would have been fired. So they were treated as subhuman. I can remember my father telling me they try to feed us food they wouldn't give to dogs. You know, and I, I remember that. He did not like his job, but he, he did his job. He was uh, supporting his family. And at the time, it was a good income. Yeah. He also used his job to change the face of Canada. Yeah, he did. So, Valerie, you know, one of the things you mentioned, we were having a conversation about the fact that, you know, the community and the church were so integrated and so close. And that I think it's the Pilgrim Baptist Church, I think, is the one that you've. Yes, Pilgrim Baptist Church. Yes, it's still on 41 Maple Street. 41 Maple. So tell me about your family's involvement in the Pilgrim Baptist Church. My father was a deacon of the church. I can't remember the time frame. I'm thinking, though, it was after he became a sleeping car conductor. I'm just trying to think of the years. Pilgrim Baptist Church was founded in 1924. It's still in the same location. Of course, he was instrumental in the rebuilding of the church. So now it's a better. I can remember the original church. Wow, it was small. You know, it was like a little wood shack. And that was the hub for the Black community at one time. You know, there were chicken dinners that were a big thing in the community. A lot of white people came to that. I often kind of wonder about that, you know, Black people frying up chicken. But anyway, I might have issues with it today, but that was the way we raised money and good money at that time. There were afternoon teas for the ladies. My mother was always, always in church. If I was ever looking for my mother as I got older, I knew where to find her. She was always part of a women's auxiliary group. So they were both very, very involved. And that's for their friends. And a lot of our family are still. Yeah, they had a, they had a very active social life. <laughs> it did revolve around the church and their friendships and family. And today, it's mainly family, I would say. Valerie, is there a way that it becomes the Pilgrim Baptist Church? Is it, I mean, do you recall how it got named? You know, I believe it started with a Pastor Hill, and then they renamed the church. I can't remember his name, but he was an American, and he started Pilgrim Baptist Church, and it was named Hills Memorial Baptist Church. And then later on, they changed it to Pilgrim Baptist Church in 1928. 
And really, it's an interesting thing because although you worship there, it's a community center. I mean, it really is a community center at that time, right? A place to gather. At that time, yes, that was that would be fair to say, yes. And I would say most Black people in Winnipeg have been through the doors of Pilgrim Baptist Church at one time or another. Whether or not they stayed, they didn't stay. It is in the hood. It's right at Maple and at uh, Higgins and Maine. And, you know, Black families also at one time lived in that Sutherland area because it was close to the railways. Their husbands went to work. And people started moving to the suburbs. So most people started moving out. And unfortunately, the congregation, the numbers have dwindled. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, Valerie, it's, I think you'd have to say that in a lot of churches, for a lot of reasons that we're maybe not going to get into today, but you've seen that, right? But the fact that it's still very much alive, well, and operating in 2022 speaks volumes about the foundation. I know, doesn't it just? And I know that you and your husband are very active in the Pilgrim Baptist Church. Very active. And how have you been able to work through the whole COVID period? We meet on Zoom. (laughs) So we have been meeting, uh, prayer meetings are Tuesday night at 7 o'clock on Zoom and Sunday mornings on Zoom as well at 11 a.m. For there was a time, I think, when we thought COVID might be subsiding that we did go back into the church, but it became clear that the, you know, there was so the numbers were so high, I think with Omicron surfaced that we decided to meet on Zoom again. We're slowly, hopefully coming out of that. So at some juncture, you're going to be able to get back into having your, your regular church service. It's nice to get together in the sanctuary and fellowship and see people, you know, people we haven't, I haven't seen in person. I've seen them on a screen. It's very different. Relationships, buildings, hard to do on Zoom. It is absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right about that. So you're still active in the church and, and I should know, and I apologize, your husband's name is? Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson. So, and he also is very active, I know, in the uh, Pilgrim Baptist Church. He is, yes. He loves Pilgrim Baptist Church, yes. Does he have a specific role there, Valerie, in terms of? No. No, and I don't have a role either. Yeah, I don't have a role. I'm a member. That's enough of a role, being a member, right? That's important. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) And we are celebrating Black History Month. Pilgrim Baptist Church is celebrating Black History Month in a big way. We have been fortunate for the last three years to get a grant through Canadian Heritage. And so we just had a rap gospel concert last Saturday night on Zoom, which I think the young people really enjoyed. We're going to have a trivia game around Black Olympians this Sunday for the children. And we're going to have a discussion. We're going to celebrate our leaders, the Black leaders in our community. Not that they're, you know, on the news or not that they're in, you know, high profile positions. They're just our community leaders. We're going to celebrate one another. Excellent. Yeah, no, I I mean, it's great. You talk about the history, and I think I started this podcast out by saying it's vital because it helps to put context for the present. And when you start to, as you say, talk about celebrating the Black leaders of today, you know, of different ages, those that are younger, that are up and coming, those that are still with us, you know, it's an amazing thing. And You're still very, I mean, obviously with COVID, but the church is still very active in terms of celebrating, I mean, Black History Month, but doesn't matter. 
every month, every week. Every day. We, I celebrate Black History every day. And our Black History Month event, unfortunately, will have to be on Zoom as well this year. This year. Yeah. We're all living it. So the notion that, that when we have this conversation next year, I suspect it's going to be in person. I look forward to that. So do I. Gospel rap concert in the church. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure, Valerie. So, you know, when we talk about Black History Month, what does Black History Month mean to you? Just a time to recognize and remember the suffering and the struggles of my ancestors. And that is the reason why I'm able to sit here and talk to you today, Stuart. I guess one of the things always that I guess it's a challenge, Valerie, on so many levels is that, as you say, and I'm, I'm delighted the way you say that you celebrate Black history every day. Every day. And celebrate. Look at our leaders, the Black leaders today. Awesome. We have come a long, long way. We may not be where we want to be, but we have come a long, long way. And I think a lot of that, I personally believe, my personal belief, that is divine intervention. I'm proud of my people. I'm proud that we stand up against adversity. I'm proud of how we came through the horrific legacy that was given to us. And do you think, Valerie, to put it in perspective, All the things that we've talked about, all the things that that you've experienced, you know, before your father was involved with the railway, all these issues around discrimination and systemic racism. It seems that there's a sense that maybe the George Floyd incident, that murder, it caused people to, I don't want to use the word wake up because I, I don't want this to be about a word. I want it to be about more of an education, an understanding a desire to make the world a better place. And that seemed to be something that started Black Lives Matter, Black Lives for Justice. And that's not the first time that those words necessarily have been spoken and have had the kind of attention that they deserve. A lot of times people say Black Lives Matter, and it became people start saying, yeah, but what about other lives? I mean, they lost the understanding of what was trying to be said there. And I'd I'd love to get your take on that. I don't think we lost the understanding of Black Lives Matter. I think certain groups wanted to repress Black Lives Matter and came out and say all lives matter. That is just racist rhetoric. So unfortunately, it took a Black man being lynched in the streets for the country to wake up. And I don't mind using the word wake up because I think a lot of people were living in, you know, denial or it's not that bad. I think that was clear what was happening to black lives in America, not only in the United States, but in Canada. We have lots of incidents of police shootings of black people. So I think it was, a, you know, certainly an opportunity to keep that awareness alive. We can't let that message die. Nothing has changed. Nothing, nothing much has changed. We have a long way to go. We have to address the racism in all of our institutions, in our governments, in our health care, our justice system, child family services. You know, our child and family, 90% of the children in care today are Indigenous children. Do we think we really elevated much since the Indian residential schools in the 60s scoop? 
I stand in solidarity with indigenous peoples. You know, it's just not right. And let's talk a little bit about your role now, Valerie, at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, the Director of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. It's an important title. It sounds like something that you're obviously extremely passionate about. What do you hope from your perspective, Valerie, to sort of shape that conversation, to move it from where it was yesterday to where it could be this time next year when perhaps you and I have a chance to speak in person at the Pilgrim Baptist Church? What would you say that you would see from a year ago when we had this conversation to where we are today? I think more people at the University of Manitoba are involved or interested and committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion. I started the University of Manitoba about nine years ago, and I'm not sure what prompted the change, but equity, diversity, and inclusion is a priority at the university, as well as anti-racism. I care deeply about the members of all of our campuses, our community. I'm committed to the work, and change is really slow in equity, diversity, and inclusion. But I see such a commitment and awareness. I learned so much from my colleagues and change is going to happen for Indigenous peoples, Black peoples, racialized persons, the 2SLGBTQIA plus community and persons with disabilities. We're also looking at anti-ableism strategy. So all of those groups fall under my portfolio. I need to be very clear. I am Black and I'm proud, but I'm also as concerned as about those other groups that have suffered significant discrimination as I am Black peoples. And it's really about having a way to find voices to be heard and to be respected and to be listened to that perhaps haven't had that opportunity in the past. And no one's free until we're all free. Right. Valerie, just we talked a little bit about the challenge you know, I'm going to sort of try and draw the Pilgrim Baptist Church experience of Zoom into what you're doing now at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences on Zoom, I assume. How is that? I mean, because you can accomplish things on Zoom for sure. No question about it. But the opportunity to be in person, the opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation that might allow somebody to have a moment of clarity that something comes and that allows somebody to maybe give somebody an embracement, a hug to say, you know, we're together, you know, we're on this together, we understand what we're trying to achieve here. How are you dealing with that kind of emotional challenge on a Zoom call? That's a great question. And I have to admit particularly for the program of equity, diversity, and inclusion, I need to build relationships with people and building relationships is hard on Zoom. I've been fortunate enough. I've been at the university for almost 10 years. So I know a lot of my colleagues. I know a lot of my partners and the relationship has already been established. So that didn't change too much from Zoom. But facilitating a session around dismantling racism is very difficult. I can't read body language. I don't know if someone's being triggered. And they're very difficult conversations to have. And Zoom, I think, even complicates that. So I'll be looking forward when I'm in person, I can sit down with people and build understanding. It's all about building understanding and empathy for people different than ourselves. Yeah. 
That's a great answer. And I, and I appreciate it very, very much. Valerie Williams, I knew that when I talked to you about the opportunity to have a conversation with you, that it was going to be interesting. I'll just say a bit pointed because that's who you are. And I think that that is tremendous. And we've spent a bit of time on a Zoom call here. Your commitment, your passion, your desire to stand up for what is right is on Zoom versus in person, Valerie, very, very, very evident. And I think that the University of Manitoba is fortunate to have you and you clearly will make a change. And I, I look forward to the opportunity when I can meet with you in person because I have learned something from you in this conversation. And I know one thing is for certain that when I see you in person, I will learn again from you. And I will learn from you as well, Stuart. This has been delightful. You know, I had heard of you before, but I was so pleased to get to know you a little bit. And do, let's get together when we can. Let's have another conversation in person. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. So Valerie Williams, thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for being patient and teaching and being open and giving those people that will listen to this episode of Humans on Rights a chance to reflect on how we can all pull together to make this a better world. Thank you for the opportunity. You take care, Valerie. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.